Hello again, Wichettas. I'm Sam. I'm Georgia. Many things are being done to manage and protect the biodiversity of our forests. But how do we know how well these measures are actually working? In this episode, we're going to look at a new research project that's monitoring the impacts of forestry on a number of threatened species synonymous with Tasmania. Wedge-tailed eagles, masked owls, giant freshwater crayfish and Tasmanian devils are all known to need our protection. And members of the forestry industry are as keen as anyone to make sure their operations do not have a negative impact. That's right. The new research initiative comprises four separate studies, each monitoring one of the four species Georgia just mentioned, using a variety of really innovative tracking techniques to find out more about their habitats and requirements. The results will be used to improve our understanding of the effectiveness of current protocols that guide forest management practices in areas where these species are known or believed to live. And this knowledge will help determine whether new or adapted approaches could better protect the animals and also minimise the impact on forestry operations. The Forest and Wood Products Australia supported program is being headed up by the Forest Practices Authority, which is responsible for regulating forestry in Tasmania. Sam spoke with its biodiversity research manager, Dr. Amy Koch, to find out more about this fascinating and important research. Yes, yeah, so the obviously we do a whole lot of things to try and manage biodiversity in the forestry setting, but we want to be sure that that management is actually working. So yeah. the aim of this project is to determine whether the management is working for four species in particular. We want to know if what we're doing is working or if we can improve it and actually manage our biodiversity values better. What prompted this particular project? Was there a kind of a sense that those practices needed to be revisited because they hadn't been for a while or had there been kind of issues that had arisen that you felt needed to be addressed? What was the kind of prompter for this project? You know, it's important that we ensure that all our species are being managed properly, but these particular species the public have a lot of um, concern about. So the, uh, the, they have slightly different motivations, the, the four species. So the wedge-tailed eagle, uh, we actually have a, a quite a complex management approach with a, with a number of different elements to it. And there is some research that has gone into the development of that approach, but we've also used research that's been done for different species overseas. But it also comes at a big cost to the industry, not necessarily so much in the the land that's put aside for them, but we actually limit the activities that can occur within 500 metres or one kilometre line of sight. And that's in the area around a nest that's known to be active. During the breeding constraint period so it's a, it's a considerable amount of time and so then that's that's the prompters and the aim for the work around the eagles nests how yep. about the owls was that a similar kind of idea or, or was there a, a different rationale yes it's a slightly different rationale for the owls basically we don't actually know that much about masked owls the key concern of forestry to masked owls is their nesting and roosting habitat 
So they rely on large hollows, which are obviously only found in large old trees. So we need to make sure that we're managing the availability of these large hollow bearing trees in the landscape. Our current management for masked owls is to look at the amount of mature forest that's available in the landscape. And we've got some thresholds um, which are considered acceptable or not acceptable. But we don't know how well that management is working because we know so little about how selective masked owls are in their tree hollows. What this research is trying to do is to go, if they're more selective than than we think, then we'll need to adjust our management accordingly to make sure we're capturing the habitat that they actually need. More from Amy about the other aspects of this project shortly. But first, we wanted to get a first-hand account about what's involved with the tracking and monitoring of, uh, of these sorts of birds. Georgia caught up with the FPA's Jason Wiersma, scientific officer and raptor specialist, which I'm sure we can all agree is right up there with some of the coolest job titles around. Jason is on the ground facilitating this work and told Georgia a bit more. What sort of what sort of techniques are involved in um in and I guess that monitoring in terms of what, what does that entail? So ours are incredibly cryptic and difficult animals to to find. So in Tasmania, because the mast owl, being a barn owl, uh, responds to vocal calls, uh, we can only find these birds by spending a lot of time driving around the landscape, do what we call hooting or playback, which uses a mast owl call uh, to entice a response from another mast owl by which then we can uh, find and locate the bird. Once we've done that, what that means then is that we can set that site up and then we can deploy traps in order to entice that bird in for a capture. So from there, we set up a very large net in front of a tree, a megaphone that's hooting this call of a territorial bird. Um, And we use these uh, playback systems, uh, actually two speakers, one near the nest and one further away, we then swap the speaker and it makes the owl think that it's actually moved onto another uh, location. So there's this imaginary owl in the landscape, which this now territorial bird is trying to chase and actually make this owl fly around in circles until it actually makes contact with a net and then it becomes captured for the research that we're doing. Yeah, right. And then once the, the owl is captured, what, what happens from there? So with many of these projects, uh, we actually don't have to put equipment on birds, but because you can't see owls, you can't do the normal direct observation. The only sort of candidate for following them around the landscape is to actually put tracking gear onto them. So we use a very small GPS tracker placed on the back of the bird with a simple cotton breakaway at the front um, mount of the chest, uh, which means that after a a couple of months or just a few weeks, in fact, this harness will fray through that cotton and then drop off the bird. Just sit in our offices and wait for that information to come in. And then we can literally log into a website and see where that bird has been during the day by the GPS data that's been collected. Wow. But of course, there's also the fieldwork component too, and that means bashing through that scrub and then using a handheld locator to go up to the trees where we might locate the hollows that we're interested in, in order to gain that really detailed data that we can use to help 
industry protect the species. This very intensive work that we're doing now, it means that we don't in the future actually have to go and track and trap more hours. We can use that information in lieu of actually finding nesting sites. And for hours, what that means is that we can consider um, protecting the species more in a landscape nature. You know, we may have hours that uh, are about two kilometres or three kilometres apart. So in a, in a forestry landscape, what that means is we ensure that we have enough set aside habitat with those required attributes for the hours that allows them to always be within that landscape. So that's a great benefit for hours in the longer term. And would you say it's a similar process for the eagles as well? So, yeah, the wedge-tailed eagles are quite different because we know a lot about their nesting habitat and we know sort of the annual trends in, in breeding. But the thing least known is how easily impacted they are by disturbance. So how do we work out if eagles are easily impacted? Well, that's a very difficult thing. So what we're interested in doing is seeing how birds interact with different disturbances at distance, testing their 500 metres and one kilometre line of sight. With the advent of new technology, possible to conduct tracking. And there's a lot of really good research coming out at the moment that basically shows that you can look at the activity intervals of eagles to evaluate a change in their behaviour. So... If we looked at a nest that had no disturbance around it, you might find that the birds had a very particular pattern that changed little. And these kind of patterns can be picked up very easily by accelerometers that are on board a lot of these GPS trackers. And when you compare that to a site where there is some activity, some forest harvesting, or maybe just a road or anything like that, changes in behaviour can be very easy to detect. And those changes can often be the result of disturbance to those birds. With seeing a change in their behaviour, we expect that um, any reduction of the constraint area that people work in and how that changes the behaviour of birds will actually determine the threshold levels itself. What's the, what's the time frame for the research for, for both of the projects? So the time frame for the OWL project um, is actually a fairly short period. So initially we will be doing a, a small pilot study on the first bird just to make sure all our equipment is working. Mm. Um, once that's done, uh, then we'll put about six more trackers on different birds, um, which should collect information just over a couple of months. So the OWL project is probably a fairly short-term project, whereas the EAGLE project will be running for uh, about two to three years uh, whereby we can make direct comparisons between years when birds breeding or not breeding and when activities are present or not. I mean, obviously, the, the, the research that you end up gathering will then determine how the industry responds. What do you sort of foresee some of the, the main benefits that the forestry industry will gain? As a consequence of the research, there's not going to be an increase um, on, on the restrictions uh, to the industry. We don't really want to put management prescriptions down that aren't of use. So if the kilometre is of no use and the 800 metres is just as useful, well, that reduction in, in the distance we have to manage uh, makes our work far less uh, complicated. And now more from my chat with Amy, uh, who had more to say on this side of things. And we'll relate the activity of the bird to the activity 
of the machinery and see if the birds are worried about the machinery at that distance mm. or not. And if they show no signs of concern whatsoever, then we will go through a process to see if we can reduce the level of management. If the birds are concerned, then there will be absolutely no reduction in management whatsoever. The next species I think that we'd mentioned were the freshwater crayfish. Might be good to, again to start with what prompted that element of the research. Yeah, so this is a slightly different project. It's not actually testing the effectiveness of management. It's developing a tool to be able to do further research. So the giant freshwater crayfish obviously uses streams. Um, it's located in streams. Firstly, the baby crayfish shelter under rocks and stuff that occur in the stream. You can often have little cavities and they'll um, hide in there, but also for respiration. So if there's too much fine sediment in the stream, then it has the potential to affect their respiration. One of the planning tools we have is a map that's reflecting the suitability of habitat for juveniles. And that map is a tool used by forest planners to prioritise what level of management they apply and effectively how wide the streamside buffers need to be. Just jumping in here for a second, for the benefit of anybody unfamiliar with the use of the term buffer zone in this context, as referred to just there by Amy, the buffer zones are basically the areas at either side of a stream uh, within which harvesting practices are prohibited uh, for the protection of the crayfish. Now, back to Amy. What this study is doing is determining if we can sample the DNA of the streams and see if we can determine whether crayfish are in those streams or not. Okay. So that technique will then be used to refine planning tools. So we have the University of Canberra uh, are the ones doing the laboratory work and they have managed to develop a primer for okay. this species. So yes, we can detect uh, giant freshwater crayfish DNA in water samples. Yep. Um, the next phase of the work will be to see what level of sampling is needed to get a, a positive result at a particular time. Yep. So there's going to be a few stages to the work. Once that has been done and we've got an idea of where the crayfish are in, in certain rivers or, or streams, what will that information then be used to inform? Like how would that potentially impact the uh, forestry practices in the, the nearby area? The, the area of interest are really the headwater streams, so the really small streams. So to try and see if we can refine the model to provide clearer and more accurate guidance on which are the priority streams um, that need the wider buffers to protect the crayfish. I think the, the fourth species that we discussed was the, the Tasmanian devils. Could you tell me a little bit about that aspect of the work? Quite a bit of research has obviously been done on them, but surprisingly little has, is known about how they use the forestry landscape. So we know that they occur there, but we don't know what actually happens during a harvest operation. Um, and because the populations got so low, any impact on the breeding of Tasmanian devils is of considerable concern. In forestry context, it's the breeding den sites that we're really worried about. We want to make sure that they're not being impacted what this study is doing is going, what happens to devils during a harvest operation? Where do they go? Uh, are they okay? Or what, and what happens to those den sites? 
Dr. Amy Koch suggested speaking to PhD student Evie Jones of the University of Tasmania, who's currently out in the field undertaking the Tasmanian Devils element of the project. Okay, so I'm out in a pine plantation in the Derwent Valley, and we're just about to release a devil that we caught. So we've been trapping for about a week now. Uh, I didn't think we'd catch a lot in a pine plantation, but I didn't think the devils would use it much, but we've been catching plenty of animals. So uh, this is Babs. She's a 2017 female. She is also lactating, so she has young in a den nearby which is really encouraging. And she's, yeah, she's healthy. So I'm going to let her go now. Off you go. And she's off into the bushes. So essentially, uh, my project is looking at how Tasmanian devils and also quolls are affected by forestry landscapes and operations. I'm trying to find out how devils use these landscapes and are affected by clear felling and use those results to inform forestry management to improve their conservation. It includes two major parts of the study. One is a landscape scale study. So I'm setting up live traps to find out um, how their health is affected by human modified landscapes. The big part of the project is looking at how devil movements and health are affected by clear felling. I'm going to be collaring a whole bunch of devils prior to a clear felling operation and then monitoring them over the clear felling operation until a couple of months afterwards. So seeing where they move, seeing what happens to their den sites is a really big question. And also, you know, where they're denning within these landscapes, we don't even know that. So there's a lot to learn. And actually, I'm just interested to know, so when you said you were collaring some of the, some of the devils to kind of, you know, see what kind of impact the, the felling is having, how do you go about that? Like where you mentioned the, the traps earlier, is it a case of that they would go into the trap and then you would uh, fit them with the collar and then they would go back out into the, into the wild? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's very intensive. So I would, I'd spend a couple of months before uh, clear felling starts trying to catch these devils. And then the fun bit is then you've got to catch them again monthly. The current recommendations, as I understand it, are to preserve windrows as devil and quoll habitat. But we don't actually know how much they use these windrows, what their value is to them, and what kind of windrows they prefer. And then, so once you've got the, the data, how are you hoping that that will be used by the forestry industry to kind of improve its processes? What might some of the kind of outcomes be that would be a benefit? It will help them identify the den sites within these coops so they can preserve the area around them. Yeah, there'll be that. And then there's also looking at which parts of the landscape they prefer. So whether certain age coops are... Uh, are more worth protecting. And now some final words from Amy. Fundamentally, it sounds like for each of the four species, what the potential outcomes would be is either stricter measures or relaxed measures, depending on what we discuss. So for the forestry industry, it it could be a positive because they might be able to do a bit more, or it might be Mm -hmm. that they need to kind of scale back in certain areas. Would that be a fair summation? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's fair. We, we basically want our management to be efficient. Yeah. So we want to be absolutely doing the right thing by the species, but we don't want it to be unduly onerous for the industry. So making sure that management is, is efficient and effective is really important. 
What do you foresee as being the main benefits for the forestry industry of the outcomes of, of this work? Um, most people in the forest industry are really committed to doing their job well. So yep. that is a real motivator. Um, but there is also some more tangible benefits in terms of the social acceptability. Um, if the public learns about this research and gets more confidence in the industry that we are trying our best to manage these values well, that can go a long way. And yep. it can also help with things like certification. A lot of the companies require for some sort of certification to sell their products. So um, this sort of research is really looked upon positively by certification schemes. It was so interesting to learn about this research project and the processes involved in gathering such important data that can help us understand these species further, as well as the ways forest practices can be adapted in support of the species and the forestry industry itself. Really exciting times ahead. Well, once again, it's always a pleasure to have you along for the ride and we hope that you'll join us again for more wood-related chat next time. 